Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays This is the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau, and I am particularly excited about the guest uh, we're speaking with in this episode, David Vermet. I've mentioned before that there does seem to be like a new energy, a new excitement within the Franco-American organizations I belong to, and I think a large reason for that is the really, really good work of David Vermet. He's a blogger, he's a researcher, and he's a writer of the ter- terrific book, tremendous book, A Distinct Alien Race, The Untold Story of Franco-Americans. So David, thank you so much for joining the French Canadian Legacy podcast you're very welcome i really appreciate the invite to come on okay so david uh tell us where you are from well i'm from uh, massachusetts originally uh the, the region that they call the south shore just south of boston but my parents are both from maine really my uh, franco-american roots are in maine uh in the mill towns of brunswick and biddeford but uh, my parents uh relocated to boston and i was born in that area and that's where i was brought up And how big of a role was the French-Canadian identity, presence, heritage in your life, kind of when you were growing up, you know, just on the South Shore? Yeah, it's a difficult question to answer because uh, it's only kind of in retrospect that I realized how deeply Franco-American my family was. So, you know, I always knew we had this French-Canadian heritage, Uh, you know, I had Like you, I had four grandparents whose first language was French. Uh, But in fact, growing up, I heard very little French. My grandparents' generation continued to speak it, but they never really spoke it to us all that much. So we had, you know, obviously certain foods and and certain customs that were right from uh, rural Quebec or in the uh, case of my maternal grandmother from uh, the former Acadia. She was an Acadian from Prince Edward Island. You know, a lot of the customs and uh, certain uh, cultural mannerisms, if you like, were clearly came from our French-Canadian heritage, and yet a lot of that was not explicitly called out. It was only when I became more educated about my uh, history and heritage did I come to realize uh, really how deeply embedded that heritage was in my family. It's a kind of funny, because it's a similar story to, we talked to Susan Panette from the University of Maine, And she was, she told us kind of a similar story with uh, some of her students uh, that she talks to. They have all these tra- traditions that happen in their family year after year, and they kind of think that it's kind of almost unique to them, and they don't know that it is part of this bigger social French-Canadian experience. Absolutely, and I, I totally relate to that because uh, I thought my mom had just made up a lot of these things, <laughs> really. And I just thought my mom made that up, and then I, I it turns out that, uh, you know, reading... I find out that that's a French-Canadian custom. And in fact, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, he would tell Quebec folk tales as if it happened to him. <laughs> so I thought they were just crazy stories that, you know, my grandfather had made up. And then, uh, you know, through my reading, I learned, no, actually, those are Quebec folk tales. That's awesome. Now, do you speak French yourself? It's complicated. I, I can read uh, French very well, uh, almost as easily as English. Awesome. Uh, I can write it so as to be understood, and uh, my comprehension of French is a lot better than my ability to form the language. Gotcha. So, you know, I wouldn't call myself fluent in French, but, you know, I have a partial uh, 
I would call it a you know a, a, a relationship of, uh, of of partial knowledge of French. Sure. Now, what was it that motivated you to invest so much of your time, so much of your life into telling this Franco-American story? Well, there's one catalytic event that I point to, and it's right at the very beginning of my book. Yeah. And that's when uh, my father, sadly, he passed away at a quite young age. I'm actually older now than my father was when he died. So uh, he died in uh, 1983, and uh, we had the funeral in our home parish down on the South Shore in Massachusetts, but he was actually buried with my mom's family up in Biddeford, Maine. So we drive two hours up to Biddeford, and I find myself in a cemetery where all of the gravestones, just about, are in French. And not only are the names French, but in fact, all of the writing on almost all of those tombstones are in French. And I'm talking about, sure. I don't know how big that cemetery is, but it's massive. It goes on for acres and acres. There are thousands upon thousands of gravestones in there. Many, if not most of them, are completely in French. Uh, and in fact, when the priest came to read the prayers at the gravesite, he asked my mom, French or English? Wow, yeah. Uh, and so that that was a really, really important event because I'm looking around this graveyard and I say, well, what does this have to do with me? You know, who who am I? Sure. It, it really raised that fundamental question of identity. You know, who am I and how does this fit into my life? Uh, so that was really, really important. And around that time I was in college. Uh, I started reading a bit about the history of Quebec and the history of Franco-Americans. I tried to understand a bit about it then, really concentrating on Quebec history. But this was a thread that I would I would put down for a while, and then I'd pick it up for a while, and i put it down for a while and pick it up. But then starting right around the dawn of the new millennium, around 2000, 2001, and now that's getting on to 20 years ago, I really started to bear down on this topic. I really started to uh, spend uh, way too much time, uh, uh, so, you know, trying to study and understand my family and uh, what it is to be uh, French Canadian or Franco American. Sure. Now, I mentioned uh, in the beginning that I was first introduced to your work through your blog. Now, where yeah. did where did we'll put a link to your blog? Where did you get the idea to start a blog from? Well, uh, it's really interesting. I I wanted to write a book. Uh, originally, I thought I should write a book about this. And in fact, uh, just people I would talk to about it, I would sound like an overexcited nut talking <laughs> about Frank Americans. And they would say, well, you got to write a book. Really, I had no platform to do that. You know, who's going to uh, who's going to give me a book contract? I really had no platform. And so I talked to a guy who's really smart about marketing. And he said, well, well, what you need is a blog. That's how you create a platform for it. So you create a blog. You write a blog, you post your stuff on social media, you develop an audience through social media, and then that will give you the platform to sell a book to a publisher. And that was exactly what happened. That is uh, tremendous. You know, I followed that plan to a T, and it worked out. So I should mention again now, the name of the blog is the, the French North America. And we will, Correct. And you, get, you want to give the website for us, in case anybody wants to go there? Yeah, it's uh, French North America, all one word. .blogspot.com. Awesome. And that, that, I didn't realize that you actually went into the blog with the book in mind right off the right from the jump. That's awesome. Yeah, the blog was R&D for a book. That was the intention all along. <laughs> okay, very cool. So now, how long were you doing this blog then before you decided, you know what, the book's going to be a thing now? It was, uh, I believe, a good four or five years. I started the blog in 2012. Uh, and I think it was uh, two, mid-2016 
uh, before I had a book contract, and uh, the book was really written in 2017, the early part of 2018. Uh, but I should say that really that whole period going all the way back to 1983 was, uh, you know, preparing me to write that book because sure. I was researching, like I say, off and on for 35 years. So people often ask me, how long did it take you to write that book? And the honest answer is it took 35 years. <laughs> That's tremendous. Now, when I tell people about the book, when I get people to buy the book, the first thing that always catches the attention is the title, A Distinct yep. Alien Race. Where does that come right. from? Well, that comes from a uh, Boston-based newspaper uh, article that was published in 1889. That uh, article said, quote, the, the, uh, they are kept, meaning the, the French Canadians in New England or Franco-Americans, they are kept a distinct alien race subject to the Pope in matters of religion and of politics. Uh, and it says something like, soon they will govern you, Americans. <laughs> and it's a very Francophobic, Catholic-phobic article. I read that quote that was quoted in a book by Mason Wade. He wrote a very well-known uh, book about uh, the French Canadians in the late 18th, 19th, and into the 20th centuries. It's kind of a a very common synthesis of French-Canadian history and English that a lot of people read. And I read that quote in his book, and I just thought, wow, that's powerful, a distinct alien race. Uh, and so I knew when I wrote my book, I knew that was going to be the title. And what I discovered is that article is by no means an isolated thing. There was what I call a campaign. And that article was part of many, many, many articles in the mainstream American press that emphasized this idea that... Uh, you know, the Catholic French Canadians were a threat to the United States. They were a threat to New England uh, and that kind of thing. So I thought that's a really great provocative title. Now, this is kind of fun. This is this whole thing is super interesting to me. Were the French Canadians, the Catholics, always a threat to the people of New England? Or, was, or did it just become more of a threat now that they started moving down? It seems like the threat was kind of always there, right? Yeah, I think the, there was always a perception, and this is kind of a thing that I learned in the course of my history, is that anti-Catholicism was endemic to the United States. It was foundational to the United States. You know, Catholics were tolerated in Maryland, English Catholics. That was kind of a haven for English Catholics, uh, who obviously were not uh, all that well-liked in England, and there had been a lot of persecution of Catholics historically. Uh, and so the, uh, the English powers that be had allowed these English Catholics to come to the New World. But outside of Maryland, uh, there was a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment. I mean, the, the Puritans who really, you know, founded New England and were a really important emphasis in New England were rapidly anti-Catholic. They were trying to purify yeah. the Church of England of Catholic influences. That was the whole point of Puritanism. They came here with a lot of uh, really rabid anti-Catholic sentiment. Uh, and, you know, the anti-Catholic uh, sentiment goes all the way back to the Quebec Act of 1774. Uh, and I'll just briefly explain a little bit about that. Sure. That uh, after the English took over Canada, uh, and that was confirmed in 1763... 
they uh, eventually uh, decided over the next 11, 10 or 11 years or so that the French Canadians who were there or the, the Canadiens as they were known at the time, they were not going to automatically assimilate to the English language and to the Protestant religion. They were intent on maintaining their religion and their culture. And so the English made a compromise. They made an accommodation and uh, they said, okay, we're going to preserve the French civil law uh, in the province of Quebec, as they had renamed the former French colony of Canada. And in preserving the French civil law, that meant that uh, they legalized the ties to the Roman Catholic clergy. And New England in particular was just apoplectic over <laughs> this. They just totally flipped out because a Protestant king of Great Britain right. was not only tolerating Catholics, he was establishing the Catholic Church by law in a territory under the rule of the Protestant king of Great Britain. That was considered absolutely intolerable. And in fact, uh, the Quebec Act is mentioned in kind of a veiled way in the U.S. Declaration of Independence. The, the Quebec Act was considered one of the so-called intolerable acts that the, uh, that the colonists uh, thought were grievances that they had against the King of England. And a big part of that grievance was uh, the fact that the, the King had established the Catholic Church in, in Quebec. Sure. And so th this anti-Catholic sentiment was really a strong part of the United States from its foundations, but and that maintained itself right through the the period of the Know Nothings. You know, in the yeah. mid nineteenth century, there was this uh, this party called the no the Know Nothings. They were actually a secret society, but they also had a political party that called itself the American Party, and they were what can only be described as pogroms against Catholics in that period. Uh, in Philadelphia, for example, in the eighteen uh, 40s, there were two separate occasions in one year where there were several days of anti-Catholic riots, where neighborhoods and churches were burned, Catholics were attacked. In uh, Louisville, Kentucky, in the election of 1851, German and Irish Catholics were actually barricaded in their neighborhood oh, wow. so that they couldn't vote. Uh, and when the Catholics tried to get out of the neighborhood and go vote, they were shot down like dogs in the street, and some of the houses were burned. Wow. So the, these incidents were uh, were all over the United States. And in fact, uh, what some people are calling Islamophobia today is nothing compared to the anti-Catholic sentiment that existed in many parts of the United States in the 19th century. Catholics were not welcome in the United States, by and large. And this history of anti-Catholic sentiment, anti-Catholic violence, has largely been papered over. People don't realize the extent of it, how long it lasted, uh, or really what that was all about. So when you started having hundreds of thousands of French-Canadian Catholics coming into New England, a region that was strongly identified with its Puritan and Protestant origins, this created a lot of dissonance and a lot of backlash in New England. The people were really afraid that the Catholics were coming here to take over. And I think you talk a lot in your work about the concept of, of race. That yeah. it wasn't just like it was a different culture. They, they, they were considered an entirely different race of people. Yeah, it's it's difficult because, uh, let's just be clear about this, as far as uh, for legal purposes in, in matters of naturalization and in the census and on military draft cards, uh, French Canadians were classified as white, right. and that was very clear. However, uh, as a, a scholar uh, by the name of Matthew Fry Jacobson points out, there were also in the United States local racializations 
that didn't always follow those national legal standards. Uh, and one of the examples that uh, Jacobson gives is Italian Americans in New Orleans, uh, where they, they worked alongside African Americans, they often socialized uh, with African Americans, and so uh, on the part of the white identified uh, uh, people in Louisiana, they weren't really sure whether Italian Americans were white or not. And in fact, Italian Americans down there were lynched with impunity wow. uh, because they were regarded as only ambiguously white. And I, and I argue in my book, and I think I, I present a pretty strong argument there, that uh, the, the Franco-Americans in New England were a case of, the, of these local racializations. For example, uh, famously, the director of the Massachusetts Bureau of Labor Statistics, a guy who, who was called uh, Colonel Carroll Wright, referred to the French Canadians in New England as the Chinese of the Eastern States. Uh, it was a way of saying, well, you know, they look white, but eh, they're not really white. And uh, Wright himself denied that uh, his statement had racial implications. But uh, I think that's absolute baloney sure. because, in fact, at that time, uh, the federal government was contemplating excluding all Chinese people from immigrating to the United States. And, in fact, in the Chinese uh, Exclusion Act of 1882, uh, that followed uh, right after Wright's report, uh, they succeeded in doing that. So there's no way that Wright was calling them the Chinese of the Eastern States in some kind of neutral way. He was trying to say, uh, you know, these people aren't really white. In the early 20th century, uh, you had two really important movements, the eugenics movement and the revival of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, the eugenics people were very clear uh, that they... Uh, regarded the French Canadians as only sort of half-white, semi-white. And the reason for that is that they divided the quote-unquote white races of Europe into three categories. There were Nordics, there were Mediterraneans, and there were Alpines. And the Nordics were regarded as, quote, the whitest of the white races. Only the Nordics, who were from northern and western Europe, uh, were regarded as the real white people. And in that hierarchy of Nordics, Mediterraneans, and Alpines, it seems clear to me that Alpines were the lowest of that yeah. uh, in that hierarchy. And in fact, the eugenics people classified French Canadians as Alpines. Uh, they also believed that they were very strongly uh, mixed racially with the indigenous people of North America rightly or wrongly, and uh, genealogists are divided on how many mixed-race couples there actually were, but it was widely believed all over New England, uh, in fact, that all French-Canadian people uh, were mixed-race people. And uh, one of the leaders of the eugenics movement, a guy called Madison Grant, said, and I quote, the cross between a white man and an Indian is an Indian. So uh, the fact that they were mixed-race and the fact that they were also classified as Alpines uh, allowed the eugenics people to uh, classify French Canadians as "quote unquote" an inferior race, and that was uh, that term was used explicitly. Uh, and you know, there was another movement uh, that I mentioned, the revival of the Ku Klux Klan, and uh, the there was a leader of the Ku Klux Klan, or, or I should say, a spokesman for the Klan. He wasn't really a leader, but a spokesman for the Klan speaking elsewhere in the country, said, and I quote, that only Protestants were, quote, the real white folks, unquote. Catholics were not considered real white folks. The, the Klan of that period, and, and here I'm talking about the 1920s, uh, was anti-Catholic, 
It was anti-Jewish. Uh, it was anti-labor, in addition to being anti-African-American. You know, most people think of the Ku Klux Klan as mainly in the South, sure. uh, mainly targeting African-American people. Uh, the 1920s Klan most definitely did uh, target African-American people. But in parts of the country like New England, where there weren't a lot of black people in the 1920s, they found other targets. And uh, Catholics were a target. And the uh, French-Canadian Catholics were targeted especially for a couple of reasons. It's a little bit complicated, but I'll go into it. Sure. One of the reasons was that uh, the Klan leader, uh, William Joseph Simmons, uh, claimed that the French-Canadians in New England had been disloyal to the United States in the First World War, uh, which is absolute nonsense. Uh, you know, my great-uncles all joined up. Right. Uh, you know, uh, they, they were not disloyal to the United States. In fact, they looked on military service as a way of proving their loyalty to the United States. But this Klan leader uh, just made up this idea that they had been disloyal. And in fact, he groups the French Canadians, uh, when he talks about this, along with German Americans, with uh, the people he calls Jewish Bolsheviks, that is communists, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the people who supported the independence of Ireland. You know, three other groups that were very much vilified in that period. So he puts the French Canadians in company that he would regard as quite inferior. There was another reason uh, that they targeted the Franco-Americans in particular is that they thought that uh, the Catholics had controlled immigration into the United States and that they were smuggling illegal aliens across the border of Quebec into the United States. And so this allowed the Klan to hold in suspicion anyone who was crossing the border from Quebec into New England. So those were reasons, besides the fact that they were Catholics, there were special reasons why they targeted the uh, French Canadians in, in New England in the 1920s. And this is awesome, because I'm glad you brought up those two things specifically, because that's actually what, what I wrote down to make sure to touch upon, because when I give, let people read the book and tell them to buy the book, with the, the first, those two topics, the eugenics and the Ku Klux Klan, I think a lot of, especially Franco-Americans, haven't heard that story before. That's That comes as a surprise to a whole lot of people. Yeah, yeah, and you know, they're both the conspiracy theory, I mean, you can look at it uh, in terms of a timeline. So mm -hmm. from 1880 to about 1900, uh, you had these ideas that uh, the French Canadians had been sent into New England by the Catholic Church in order to seize political control of New England and eventually annex New England to an independent Quebec. That was the conspiracy theory. Uh, they thought that Quebec would break off, become an independent country, and then they would annex New England with all of its wealth and resources, which were vast in those days. That would become a new independent country called New France. Okay, so there was that conspiracy theory. That was floated very much in the period from about 1880 to 1900, and then starting in the early 1900s, you started to have this eugenics noise, you know, so the eugenics people came along, and uh, they were very strong in the teens and into the 20s, and then in the 1920s, you start to get the Ku Klux Klan movement. So there were these successive movements uh, that were targeting the uh, French Canadians. Now, why don't we know those stories? And they were a surprise to me, too. You know, I'm one of those Franco-Americans who never heard any of that right. growing up. I had no clue about any of that. I learned it through research. Uh, and so why weren't those stories passed down? And 
uh, my theory about that is that there was no value in people's great grandparents or grandparents passing on those stories. You know, who you know, your your mamere doesn't want to pass down to you that she was thought poorly of. There's no good reason for Makes that. Makes sense, yeah. Uh, and the other uh, theory that I have is that they found other targets, okay? So starting in the, you know, 1890s, early 1900s, there started to be a massive immigration of people from Southern and Eastern Europe, uh, a lot of Jewish people from Eastern Europe, a lot of non-Protestant Christians, either Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox people from Greece or Russia who started coming to the United States. And so they became the new targets. And in fact, uh, I talk about this in the book. There's this interesting thing that happens, which is each wave of immigrant becomes cast in this role of the good immigrant. Okay, so I'll give an example. So yeah. the Irish come along. And the Irish, they're, you know, they, they get kicked uh, all over the street by the know-nothings. They're discriminated against. No Irish need apply. Uh, and then the French Canadians come along. And all of a sudden, you start to read in the papers that, oh, the Irish weren't so bad. Sure. You know, the, at least the Irish spoke English. Right. But these French Canadians, they don't speak English. They won't speak English. They won't assimilate. And all of a sudden, the Irish becomes the good immigrant. Now we're focused on the bad immigrants, who are the French Canadians. Then Southern and Eastern Europeans come along. And then all of a sudden, the French Canadians become the good immigrants. You start reading about how, well, the French are very thrifty. They're very hardworking. They're very law-abiding. And uh, then the, the Southern and Eastern Europeans are cast in the role of the bad immigrants who won't assimilate. And so now we have, you know, the Hispanics. Uh, they are now cast in the role of the bad immigrants who aren't assimilating, and we look back and we see the European immigrants, Italians and Polish and Greeks and whatnot, they've now decided, their descendants have now decided that their ancestors were the good immigrants. So each wave of immigration thinks that their ancestors were the good immigrants, uh, in contrast to the current crop who are seen as uh, in a negative light as those who won't assimilate and get with the program. And, and your work draws a lot of parallels between the French-Canadian immigration and the immigration across our southern border right now. Yeah, I think this is one of the big hooks because my work is trying to put the Franco-American story in the larger context of United States history and also Canadian history. Uh, but for Americans, I want to put this story in a larger uh, context so that they can understand it. And I think one of the most important things to understand is that the French Canadians were cross-border immigrants. They were crossing a land border into the United States. They didn't cross the ocean from France. You know, they crossed the ocean yeah. from France back in the 1600s, 1700s. They had already been in uh, North America for a very long time. And then they were crossing a land border into New England. Uh, and uh, when that happened during the movement of French Canadians into New England, which we can date approximately to, uh, you know, 1840 to 1930, you started to have certain issues like the question of bilingual schools, right. like the question of cultural assimilation. There were questions about how these newcomers would vote. There were demographic concerns uh, about the size of their families. There were concerns about, you know, their religion and their cultural influence in the United States. Uh, and so all of those questions, which should sound familiar to 
anybody with a pulse <laughs> in the United States yeah. now. Uh, all of those issues that are on the southwestern border now were on the northeastern border in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But this historical precedent is almost completely unknown. In fact, you will read articles that will say that, uh, you know, this influx of, uh, of Spanish-speaking people from south of the border is totally unprecedented in U.S. immigration history. Uh, there was a famous article written by a, a conservative uh, pundit called Samuel Huntington, who made that case in an article in uh, the very prestigious journal Foreign Affairs in 2004. He wrote an article called The Hispanic Challenge that I quote in my book that says, this is totally unprecedented in United States history. That, again, is utter baloney. It's not <laughs> unprecedented, but people need to understand this historical precedent. Okay, that's awesome. Now, I did want to mention another project that you are working on right now, and that's through your, your YouTube page. You were publishing different YouTube videos. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Just got the beginnings of it. And, uh, you know, I should say I'm a novice at this, uh, <laughs> making videos. I'm just kind of learning how to do it. So, uh, you know, what I've got up there so far is experimental. But the goal of that is to make some of the information in the book free. You know, so people can go on YouTube and they can learn in, you know, short five or six minute chunks about some of the information that's in the book. Obviously, I'm promoting my book. Obviously, if you write a book, you want people to buy it and read it. But I also just want people to know this story. I wrote the book because it seems really important to me that people know this story. So on my YouTube page, I'm making some of this information available in video form. Now, right now, I only have three episodes up there now, but I've created a, a, a series that I'm calling The Other Border in keeping with what I was just talking about. And so uh, on, in the Other Border series, uh, what I'm doing is taking bits and pieces of the book, I'm chopping it up into five or six minute episodes and I'm putting it up there. So if people go to, to YouTube and they search my name, uh, they will certainly find my uh, YouTube uh, page and they can look at what I've got up there so far. All right, and we'll definitely put a link to that also on our social media and our website. Because uh, it's in the, are you, do you have like a schedule? Are you planning to release every so often or is it just as they get produced? Don't have a strict schedule. I'm trying to come up with uh, maybe two episodes a month, uh, something on that order, you know, maybe uh, one every two weeks or so. It seems to be the periodicity. Uh, it takes me a little while to uh, figure it all out. And like <laughs> I say, I'm new to the technology. Sure. It's something like that. Outstanding. Now, we did mention again at the beginning that this Friday, May 3rd, you were going to be speaking in Manchester, New Hampshire at the Franco-American yep. Center. I just want to make clear to the audience, no tickets are needed. You can just come on by. You can be able to check out David. It's not going to cost you anything. You can just walk in to the campus of St. Anselm College. And what are you going to be talking about? What can we expect to hear in that presentation? Well, I'm going to talk about the conspiracy theory. Uh, this uh, you know, obviously, in a in a forty five minute talk or so, I can't cover a book that's over three hundred pages right. long. So you've got to you've got to cut it up and you've got to specify. So what I'm talking about in Manchester is the portion of the book uh, that is about the reception of Franco Americans in New England, and specifically what I want to focus on is the conspiracy theory that was floated in the press in uh, the eighteen eighty to nineteen hundred period uh, that I described. Uh, earlier, but basically it's going to be about how that developed. 
And what I do is I trace uh, the development of that story of the New York Times, because the New York Times covered the story of Franco-Americans in New England from pillar to post, uh, in both its editorial pages and its news pages. And I'm not talking about one or two articles. I'm talking about article after article after article over years. It really covered it heavily. Uh, and what I'm going to do is trace how this conspiracy theory evolved, because it didn't appear fully formed. It started out as, as uh, a germ, as a seed, and then it grew, it grew, and grew, so that by the early 1890s, the New York Times was spreading uh, just massive paranoia about the uh, French Canadians in New England, and I should point out that this conspiracy theory was not only a creature of the press. There was a big element in the Protestant uh, clergy of the region uh, that not only spread this conspiracy theory, but had a very active and well-funded campaign to uh, convert the Franco-Americans to the various Protestant denominations. So they, they put huge efforts into a proactive campaign to convert the Franco-Americans. Uh, you know, there were academics who wrote about this. So the press, the clergy, academia were all on board with this conspiracy theory. Uh, and uh, this is part of what I call the campaign. And this was an anti-Franco-American campaign that was launched in the late 20th century to convert the Franco-Americans and, uh, and get them to forcibly assimilate to what was imagined to be the uh, U.S. English-speaking culture. Outstanding. So again, that is this Friday, Manchester, New Hampshire. If you are in the area at all, make sure you come by. Check out David. David, where can somebody buy your book? Well, it can be bought uh, directly from the publisher, which is barakabooks.com. Uh, it can also be purchased, of course, on good old Amazon.com. You just search the title or my name and you'll find it lickety-split. Uh, you can also find it on BarnesandNoble.com. And uh, I would also request that people uh, uh, ask for it at your favorite bookstore. Uh, you can also ask your uh, local library to purchase the book, too. Awesome. Again, that's a distinct alien race, the untold story of Franco-American. If you at all care about the Franco-American history, story, cultural identity, how we got to where we are today, you have to follow the work of David Vermette. David, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. It's been a great conversation, and, and thank you for doing this podcast. I think it's a great idea, uh, and it's a great initiative on your part. Well, I'm super excited about it. Thank you very much. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.
This program is recorded at the Conquer TV podcasting studio. The views and opinions expressed during this podcast are not necessarily those of Conquer TV. The producer is solely responsible for its content.